you can uh, look in the liturgy for our text today, John 2. Going to look at particularly Jesus' words here that are recorded in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. And our sermon series right now is, um, I'm calling it the Red Ladders of John. And as most of y'all know, we're, that means we're going to focus in on what Jesus actually said as it's recorded, what also what he did, what he taught, certainly, and the way he lived. Um, somehow that's kind of gotten lost. It can easily get lost in religious circles, in churches, uh, in Christianity. So we're going to try to focus in on that ourselves. And we get to um, John chapter 2, verse 13, and... Um, this, this, this Jesus is bad. <laughs> so let's, let's look at him. John 2, beginning in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And within the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a whip of cords. And drove out of the temple, all of them, the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away from here. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. They replied, it took 46 years to build this temple and yet you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, I, my prayer is that we would, Holy Spirit, that you would enable us to listen, to pay attention, listen especially to you, Tell us what you want us to know about you. I pray that we wouldn't, we're we're all bringing a filter, we're all bringing our bias, but I I pray that our bias briefly in this, this message will be you, Jesus, that you will be the bias as you are, who you really are, so that we might hear what you have to say and enable us, Holy Spirit, to follow no matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter why we're here even. That's my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. So I I think the Holy Spirit this week gave me a word that I want to try to convey to you. Um, It doesn't always quite hit this this deeply um, as it did this week. Some of y'all have heard me talk about the Bible. And, um, and I, I, love, I love to talk about the Bible and talk about the Bible in terms of it being this one story 
um, really 66 chapters broken up into two testaments. There's a, a really large Old Testament, and then just one-fifth of the Bible is actually the bias, so to speak, that we're meant to, the lens through which we're meant to understand the Old Testament. It's, as the early church fathers said, it's the New Testament, and I would say Jesus in particular is the light switch that we flip on so that we notice all of the furniture in the room that was always there in the Old Testament, but in the shadows, it was dark. And Jesus is the light so that we see what is there. And you may have heard me talk about how um, in the original Hebrew canon, Malachi was not the last book. Chronicles was and is still. And, and Chronicles wasn't, wasn't, two, wasn't first and second Chronicles. It was just Chronicles. And at the very end of Chronicles, so this was, this, and I, I would say still is meant to be understood as the last verse of the Old Testament is the last verse in Chronicles. In our Bibles, you find it under Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. This is the last thing that is said. Here it is. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. As in let him go up and rebuild the temple. And then the Old Testament closes 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and then Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. The temple has come. The temple is Jesus. But here's the word that I think I received this week. That is true. But here's the main main teaching. The temple has arrived and is arriving, and that temple is also you. The temple is you and me. You see, Jesus rebuilds the house of God for all the kingdoms of the earth. That was another (laughs) curveball. And that rebuilt house ultimately is meant to be you. There it is. The temple has arrived and is arriving, and that temple is you. Two headings, and I've used these before, disorder and reorder. Yes, using language from Father Roar, disorder and reorder. We skip the first box of order. We're just going to focus on, in this text, disorder and reorder. First, disorder. That is what, do you see Jesus doing this? Creating havoc, disruption, disorder. Very intentional. It's a cleansing. Now, first thing to note, like, like the scholar N.T. Wright says, um, we, we, can, we need to sort of get into the scene here. The temple wasn't just like a church on a street corner. You know, there, those, those things, those buildings are everywhere. There was one on planet Earth, <laughs> and it was in Jerusalem, 
It was the very center of all of religious life on earth for the Jews and the only place on earth where God's presence was thought to dwell. So the temple's a big deal. Jesus strolls in, sees that there's commerce and business that really, as it says, the temple, God's house has become a place of commerce and corruption. All of a sudden, greed and worldly power, me and mine kind of idolatry has taken hold and Jesus is pissed. And that is the correct word. He's angry. I don't know how else you can see this. He's really angry. This is God, perfect God, the Son. He finds some cloth and, and braids together a whip, like a rope, a really tough and long whip, and begins wielding that thing. Now, notice he doesn't hit anyone. That's, that's important because Jesus is not about violence, but he does get angry. He's not about hurting people, but he will make a point with righteous indignation here. And he literally, the text says, moves everybody out of God's house, including all the animals that they were selling for those that were coming to make sacrifices. And those selling the doves, that would have been for the most poor. He especially has a word for them. What are you doing? How dare you use and exploit my people? The poor especially are my people. And then after running them out, now you, you can... You should, I was asking, where are the guards? Like, where are the temple guards? I, I'm assuming scared, too. They're all gone. After they're gone, then he takes, and it, this, is a, this is a scene. This is public protest. He, he takes the money and he throws it all onto the floor, all of it. Then he picks up the tables, the money, and he turns them over. He creates, I mean, this is um, quite, a, quite a disruption to say the least. Disorder. He loses it. Why? Well, first of all, I want to pause here for a second. As my therapist says, anger has a rightful place at the table of emotions just like all the others. It, in and of itself, is not sinful. Clearly, right? This is one lesson that I think we're meant to take away. You know, it's just like one of my favorite movies, Inside Out. Remember, y'all remember that Pixar movie? All, all, remember the five emotions, the characters there? Sadness, joy, disgust, fear, and anger. Anger, anger is, is a, has a seat at the table along with the other emotions. As my therapist also says, it's a pack animal. It's usually attached 
to something, and it's good to explore what it's attached to so that you might, that's good inner work to do because sometimes any emotion can take over and they're, they're not meant to take over. They're, they're meant to be like a barometer um, or on our, like on our, our dashboard showing us something. We're meant to tune in and listen. It's not meant to, like our ego, not meant to uh, be behind the wheel. Those things are, certainly our ego are not meant to be driving things. So what, what's it attached to for Jesus here? Justice. That's clearly what's, what it's attached to. His anger is rooted in this righteous love of justice and of people. The other gospel accounts, all three of the others mention this scene too. I take it to be the same scene. And one thing that's mentioned in the other three accounts is, it's not here in John, but I think it's worth bringing to bear, is it's also stated that the temple is a house of prayer for the nations. That's the way it was always meant to be. It actually was, even in the Old Testament, was always meant to be for all the peoples. There was a space for everyone, um, although divided up. And what Jesus does as the very temple comes as the Holy of Holies and comes to now all the kingdoms of the earth. But still, there's this hint that even in the Old Testament, the temple had this space for Gentiles too. And guess what? They couldn't get in because of the commerce going on. That's why Jesus is mad also. That's what his anger is attached to. So this is a cleansing Right? This is a purifying going on of God's house. And I think the same thing's happening today. I, I really believe that there's a reckoning going on in our culture, at least in America, maybe all across the globe. There is a cleansing, actually, a purifying. God's ways are mysterious, but I think that is, and people that are being used to that end are interesting, but that is what is going on. So I think it's very intentional. I think it's very similar to what Jesus did in his day. I think God has broken out the whip to rid the church this time of her corruption, of her injustice, of her idolatry. And I don't know exactly what it's going to look like going forward, but I do think that is what is happening. Um, What's the idol within the American church at least? Eh, Well, it's the same. It's a really a way of life that is marked by me and mine, by greed and power. So this calls for something new. And I think Jesus is the one who's drawn the line in the sand. <laughs> it calls for something new, but actually, really, it's, it's going back. It's a restoration of something very ancient, and very old, an old way that is the way of love, that is the way of embrace, acceptance, and inclusion. So it's actually not new, but it has to be recovered. And in order for that to happen, there first has to be disorder. That's just the rhythm of life. That's just the way it works. Um, Father Richard Rohr in Falling Upward talks about how many of the people in the church today are not receptive to this Jesus. (laughs) They are not receptive to Jesus as he really is. 
And he, he says their soil, therefore, is not receptive. Thinking of, thinking of Matthew 13, the parable of the sower and the seeds, you know, there's some soil that's receptive and there's others, it's rocky, that's, um, that's not receptive and so on and so forth. And, and this is the quote, this is what he says. He says, today I often find, and I find this to be true in my own experience, today I often find the receptive soil more outside of churches than within, many of which have lost that necessary beginner's mind, both as groups and as individuals, which is probably why Jesus made the sinner the outsider, the Gentile, the Samaritan, the woman, the Roman centurion, the poor person, and the leper, the heroes and heroines of his stories. I'm definitely seeing that myself. There is more receptive soil outside the religious groups and outside the church today than inside. And um, we're placed, I hope, I, I'm actually, I, I would say optimistically today at least, I'm starting to see those people maybe come, come toward the church, I think. I think that's what God is doing as well. What church is going to look like, I still don't really know. Um, and I get those that, wanna, that, that have found what Roar is talking about in the church, which is an arrogance and a self-righteousness. And I get why people want to leave. And I, Godspeed. I don't, I don't actually, re- be honest, I don't recommend that anyone work for the church right now. I told Molly that. That's why she's, she's looking at chaplaincy. It's hard. It's hard. But, but as Shannon Spencer says, there's also, there are people, y'all, me perhaps, that are meant to be both funeral directors and midwives. Laying to rest something that needs to die, but birthing something new. There's a tension. There's a disorder that is very intentional. Lastly, reorder. The cleansing of the temple, you may know this is recorded, as I said, in, in the other three gospels. But, but anybody know where it's recorded in the other three gospels? It's at the end of Jesus's ministry. We're at the beginning. In the other three gospels, it's at the end around Palm Sunday and Holy Week. Here it's at the beginning, which is interesting. Um, one, one thing we learn from this, and this is, this is a, this, you need to know this about the Bible, okay? The Bible is meant to give, and this is what we're seeing in John especially, a deeper meaning below the surface, uh, a message, a deeper meaning to life, and time in the Bible is relative, And chronology, not important to the meaning of this message. It's a a theological story, if you will. It's not not linear. It is, and this is why um, I believe we must, well, as one theologian put it, unless Christianity returns to its mystical roots, it will die. We need to approach Scripture not like we normally approach our own life even, or maybe other Books, perhaps. 
That's one thing we learn. John, John, no, this is very intentional. Like John is trying to make a point by including this same scene before Jesus's ministry, as opposed to at the end. And his point is in order for there to be reorder and resurrection, there first has to be disorder and deconstruction. It's got to be there. It's a way, it is a necessary step in life. And so at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, there is disorder, things are, there's disruption so that there might be reorder at the end of his ministry, at his crowning achievement, which I would say isn't just the crucifixion, it's certainly the resurrection to and ascension and Pentecost. So that's, I think, one way to look at the ordering here in in John, I think this is part of his meaning. Deconstruction and disorder is a necessary step in life, but, but next chapter, we'll be in this, Lord willing, next week. What do you find in chapter three of John? Anybody know? What's, what's the word that evangelicals have just made a mess of? Huh? Rebirth, born again. Born anew, born from above, disorder, death, reorder, rebirth. Yeah, you got to, Jesus will tell Nicodemus, as we'll see next week, you actually got to be born again. Not to get in the kingdom, he says, in order to see the kingdom, to see what you're already in. So that's what happens. We'll get there next week. So a lot of people right now, and I'm using intentionally the buzzword deconstruction. A lot, I think it's fine. I mean, use that, use that word. It needs to happen. It's, it's a, become a cliche for a reason because it's happening to so many of us. Um, here's the problem, though. I'm afraid a lot of people just stay in a constant state of deconstruction, just, just disorder. Just, and I get this. I'm, I'm, there's no one more cynical or pessimistic than me. Um, I told, apparently I told my, one of my first pastors that there's no hope for the church as a college student. Um, as I don't remember that, but he's told me, I told him that. Um, and so this is the unfortunate tragedy though. If you're just always critiquing everything and deconstructing, well, all you're doing, and I want to use Carl Jung's language again, that Richard Rohr repackages, first half of life, which we're all meant to be in, and then not stay and go. We're meant to move to the second half of life, which is the life of freedom and expanse, like the Rohr quote there in the, in the bulletin. Unfortunately, if you only deconstruct, what you end up doing is just rearranging the furniture of the first half of life over and over again without ever moving in to this place of reorder where, where you're settled. Here's, here's the funny thing, though, is mystery becomes more prominent. It's, you leave certainty behind in order, even the certainty that all that you experienced in the first half of life was bad. War says one, re, one way you know you're in the second half of life is you begin to have grace and compassion for yourself and others when they are, they are still in the first half of life. You, you, you realize it's not, not healthy to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you, you spit out the bones and you move into a place that's more expansive, that's more abundant, that's less certain, <laughs> but more free. 
And, and actually what you're, what you're certain of becomes much smaller that enables everything else to be held like this and enables you to walk and follow a person that you don't, and you don't really know where he's going, but you know you can trust him because he is love. You got to get to reorder though. You can't just stay in disorder. In Christ, at the resurrection, this is what we believe as Christians, our true self rose with him, is restored. The house is being reordered. Look at verses um, 18 through 21. After Jesus makes this scene, this, I kind of like this. It's kind of funny. Um, I mean, I get the question that, that he's asked there. Verse, verse 18 through 21. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? <laughs> like, like explain yourself. I mean, it's like a, like a child that has just completely wrecked his room in a, in anger. Uh, can parent walks in? Can you explain yourself here? That's what they're doing. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. They replied, it took 46 years to build this temple, and yet you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, his body. And here's where we move into an even deeper understanding of Jesus as the temple. Okay, you, you New Testament scholars, um, what does the New Testament say time and time again? Or who or what is, what is the body of Christ? Huh? The church. 22 times in the New Testament. That's a lot. The body of Christ, well, it's not a building. <laughs> it's not a place. It's a people. It's the church. That's, that's all the church are people. The body of Christ is actually you and me. 1 Corinthians 6 Paul says, you, you are a temple, the dwelling place of God by faith in Christ. The dwelling place of God on earth is now you. So yes, Jesus is a temple, resurrected, reorder begins and is still continuing. Jesus ascends, Pentecost comes, Holy Spirit comes down, as it were, metaphorically, and dwells us. And we become the very dwelling place of God. We are not God, but we have become the temple of God on the earth. The dwelling place of God. Now, you are now the temple of God. The temple has arrived and is arriving, and it's you. (laughs) It's me. Um, I'll end with this. So, uh, y'all know most of you that I, the poets of my life were the, the, um, the, the indie musicians like that we're having this Saturday at our, or at our house. Um, and that's where I get most of my poetry and, um, we need the poets to kind of 
tell us what's in, in the margins of life that really can't be explained through prose. We need the artists for that reason. And, and the artists I tend to listen to, um, you don't find on K-Love, and that's fine if you listen to K-Love. But um, one of my favorite bands is Arcade Fire, and um, their last album, I, I thought it was the best new album that year, called We. And all their albums have themes. They're, I think they're works of art. They're meant, sorry, um, Gen Z years, you're meant to listen to the whole album, actually, to, to get the whole arc of the, the art, not just the, the digital downloads of the songs, but um, no offense. But um, in, in this album, there's one song, it kind of ebbs and flows, just one song that I, I love, called, it's called Unconditional One, Part One, Look Out Kid. And um, Wynn Butler, the, the lead singer, he, he actually wrote this song for his nine-year-old boy, as something he wants his kid to know. It's beautiful. Um, I actually, uh, it is, so it's a father to, to child kind of song. It's, um, it was this, it, when Amelia went off to college last year, uh, you know, uh, not, this was meaningful, as meaningful as stories on Instagram can be, but my, the story, I very intentionally put this song, because this is also, this was my word, um, to her. And um, I think it's God's word to us. It's, it's, a, it's a father to a child. And, it's, and I want to I read part of Wash Over You with me, but just what God, I think, tells us as the very dwelling place and temple of God. Look out, kid. Trust your heart. You don't have to play the part they wrote for you. Just be true. There are things that you could do that no one else on earth could ever do. Look out, kid. Trust your body. You can dance and you can shake. Things will break. You make mistakes. You lose your friends again and again because nothing is ever perfect. No one's perfect. Let me say it again. No one's perfect, right? Look out, kid. Trust your soul. It ain't hard to rock and roll. You know how to move your hips, and you know God is cool with it. But some people want the rock without the roll. But we all know there's no God without soul, right? And here's the chorus. A lifetime of skinned knees and heartbreak comes so easy, but a life without pain would be boring, And if you feel it, it's fine. I give you everything that's mine. I give you my heart and mind. Precious time. It's unconditional. It's unconditional. No matter what you do, it's unconditional. There's the gospel, friends. You're the temple. It's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this good news. I pray that we at least heard it. And for some of us, we may be scratching our heads. And uh, I, I, just, I guess my prayer really is that we would have the faith of a child and that we would approach particularly what you have to say, Jesus, not thinking that we know all the answers so that the truth might actually get in and change us and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen.